The Leslie Speaker is a combination amp and speaker named for its inventor, Donald Leslie, and famous for its rotating, vibed-out sound. It's commonly associated with the Hammond organ, but you can run anything through a Leslie, and whatever you choose to put through it, it'll probably sound good. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you've joined me for 100 episodes of Music Played by Leslie's, music played through tube amps, and sometimes music with no amplification at all. This is an entirely listener-supported podcast, and it has been since the very first episode I made. That means I rely on all of you out there being willing to chip in and help me keep making it. If you think it's cool that I make this show and you want to help out, go to patreon.com slash strongsongs or find a PayPal link for one-time donations in the show notes. On this 100th episode, we're drawing to the end of year four, and it's time for something special. So we're going to be looking at not just a strong song, but a strong album. An album synonymous with the concept of a concept album. So let's fire up the movie, listen for the line, and let the needle drop. The album starts not with a powerful downbeat or an evocative chord progression, it starts with silence. It's 1973, you've just bought a new album by one of your favorite bands. All of your friends have been talking about it. Just put it on, they say, close the windows, turn down the lights, and listen. And that's what you've done. You sit with your eyes closed and you start to hear what sounds like a heartbeat. It swells in volume until it's unmistakable. This is a heart, and it's joined by the ticking of clocks, the chirping of cash registers, and the mumbling, discursive words of a series of unnamed, mysterious men. It starts to build, buoyed by a low drone, muted sound effects and a high-pitched rattle like a helicopter. And a laugh, giving way to a scream, giving way to a song. And just like that, you're in it. You've taken your seat on board a psychedelic, vibraphonic, interstellar passenger train. And for the next 43 minutes, you'll take a tour through time and vice, money and madness, soulful fury and the deepest melancholy, as Pink Floyd carries you out and up from your dimly lit bedroom to the dark side of the moon. In 1972, four musicians, guitarist David Gilmore, drummer Nick Mason, keyboardist Richard Wright, and bassist Roger Waters, headed into the studio along with recording engineer Alan Parsons and a handful of studio musicians in order to turn a suite of songs they've been performing into an extended concept album. The result, released almost a year later, was The Dark Side of the Moon, an album that made music history. On this episode, I'm going to be taking you on a tour through the many sounds, styles, and textures of this classic record, a process that's opened my ears to so many new elements of this album, and which I hope will open your ears to just as many more. The Dark Side of the Moon wasn't always the Dark Side of the Moon, a seminal moment in recorded music and an artistic landmark of the 20th century. At one point, it was just the planned eighth studio album by Pink Floyd. The band sought to bring some of the longer-form suites of music they'd been experimenting with live into the studio and to build something that held together from start to finish. The album's subject matter, with lyrics written by bassist Roger Waters, focused on a variety of the sorts of universal challenges faced by each member of the band. The passage of time, the pressures and stresses of money, the horrors of war, the fear of death, and, primary among them, the tragedy of mental illness, a focus that came in part because of the mental health struggles of their recently departed band member, Sid Barrett. The lunatic is in the hall. 
cheeks are in my heart. Waters, along with guitarist David Gilmore, keyboardist Richard Wright, and drummer Nick Mason, each have music credits on different tracks on the album, and Gilmore, Wright, and Waters each take turns singing lead on different tracks. Waters sings lead only on the final two songs, Brain Damage and Eclipse, but those are two crucially important songs. I know a thing or two about the importance of a strong conclusion, and Dark Side of the Moon would be a very different album if it didn't have Eclipse at the end. We'll get to it, but that's how you end an album. All that you touch, and all that you see, all that you taste. The album saw the quartet experimenting with multi-layered guitar arrangements, rich vocal harmonies, droning and looping synthesizers, sampled tape loops, and repurposed field recordings to let them go well beyond the sonic limitations of a four-piece rock band. And while The Dark Side of the Moon is largely considered as a collected work, it does have one notable exception. The Odd Meter blues-tinged album centerpiece Money was the first of their singles to break through in the United States and remains one of their most famous songs. They were joined by a collection of studio musicians who each provided transformative performances for this album. Saxophonist Dick Perry, a local sideman they'd worked with in the past and who played solos on the album's two centerpiece songs. Vocalist Claire Torrey, who's improvised lead part on The Great Gig in the Sky, still stands as one of the great recorded wordless vocalese solos. And vocalists Doris Troy, Leslie Duncan, Liza Strike, and Barry St. John, whose harmonized backup parts beautifully filled out the album, and a couple of whom stepped out for crucial solos of their own. So, on this episode, we're going to take a tour through this groundbreaking album, stopping off at each major inflection point to go through a few things that I think are cool, or that I think might enhance your experience of listening to the record. Here at the start, though, I do want to briefly touch on something that at least frames this album for me. So everyone had their own first time listening to this album, but I'm guessing that at least some of you out there are like me, in that you'll always associate this album with a certain, very famous motion picture. You, my pretty, and your little dog, too. <laughs> yes, The Dark Side of the Moon is a subject of a well-known and, in my opinion anyway, very charming musical urban legend. That's the idea, which originated on the message boards of the mid-90s early internet, that the album had been designed to line up perfectly with the 1939 film The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> As the rumor goes, or at least as I heard it, if you press play right at that third roar of the MGM lion, the album and the film will sync up and Pink Floyd will provide a haunting alternate soundtrack for The Wizard of Oz. And as it happens, when I was in high school, a group of friends and I decided to try this. I had actually never heard the album. I knew next to nothing about Pink Floyd, but we were all hanging out one day and the next thing I knew, I was watching The Dark Side of the Rainbow, as it's come to be called, and it was kind of blowing my mind. At the time, I felt certain that the album was really lining up with the movie. The same group of friends and I watched it a number of times. Stone sober, I want to stress. And we became kind of obsessed with it. In the process of looking for new ways that the film and the album synchronized, she falls off the fence right as the music changes. The clocks summon the Wicked Witch. The movie pops into Technicolor right at the start of Money when the cash register goes off. The munchkins, they're dancing in time. I realized I was really just digging this album. This was good stuff. So I won't spend any more time on it here. It really does seem like those moments of synchronicity, which are undeniable, that they really might just be one of those great cosmic coincidences. At least no one from the band has ever done more than seem mildly amused when someone asks them about it. But for all of you out there who have tried watching the movie along with the album, I just wanted to say, I'm right there with you. I have done it as well. And if you like The Dark Side of the Moon and have never tried syncing it up with The Wizard of Oz, it's honestly pretty cool and I recommend it. Grab that cash with both hands and make a sound. 
so that's enough context and preamble. Let's get into it. The first track, On the Dark Side of the Moon, also functions as a sort of overture, or at least it always has functioned that way to me. It's called Speak to Me. It's the one tune on the album solely credited to drummer Nick Mason. And it begins with a heartbeat sound, but as I already noted, it quickly adds more sounds, sounds that actually come from other parts of the album. Ticking clocks, cash registers, synth drones, interview audio. So if you're familiar with The Dark Side of the Moon, Speak to Me takes on a kind of a different quality. It starts to feel like an overture, where the orchestra will play a selection of songs from the coming show to whet your appetite and give you a sense of what's coming. Speak to Me does much the same thing, only instead of musical snippets, it's weaving together audio effects from the album to come, which does a really good job, I think anyways, of setting the stage. It's this dark, moody vibe from the very start, just a heartbeat and a bunch of abstract sound effects and vague, hard-to-understand spoken dialogue. It establishes the sonic template from the start, building and layering before eventually swelling into the album's first song, which is simply called Breathe. The remarkable thing to me here is, even though the band has come in with a more traditionally understandable kind of a groove, they're really patient with how they develop things. For an unusual amount of time, they're just grooving, going back and forth between two different chords, back and forth, back and forth. E minor, and A major, then back to E minor, then up to A major. In terms of the arrangement, Breathe establishes a number of important things right from the start. Mason's drums and Waters' bass are right there in the middle, they're keeping it pretty simple. Wright's electric piano is also pretty simple, it's panned over to the right, he's not playing a whole ton on this song and he's lower in the mix, which leaves David Gilmour's guitar, or more accurately his guitars, which are the defining sonic and harmonic element of this song. Pretty quickly, there are three different guitar parts working together to paint this broad, beautiful harmonic backdrop. The first one, which you're hearing me recreate over there on the left, is Gilmore's signature Fender Strat through a univibe pedal, which gives it this rotating, undulating quality. So I'm getting that sound with an Electroharmonics Good Vibes, which is a modern pedal that's designed to create the sound of a Univibe pedal. But a Univibe is kind of just its own thing. It's distinct from a chorus pedal or a phaser or other similar guitar effects, and it's going for that rotating Leslie organ speaker thing, which gives it a more three-dimensional spinning quality. It's really cool. Listen for it. It's over on the left. It's all about that univibe, it sounds like grass blowing in the breeze, and it's integral to the lazy, spacious energy of this song. And over on the right you're hearing the second of Gilmore's guitar parts, which is soon joined by a third in the center. So there in the middle and over on the right are two sliding serpentine steel guitar parts which combine to make those two basic chords, E minor and A major, into this whole blurry, floating experience. So by the time the vocals finally come in, you're almost two and a half minutes into the album and fully locked into the vibe. Now I was a jazz kid back when I was in high school, and something that appealed to me about The Dark Side of the Moon was how clearly jazz influenced it was, particularly when it came to Richard Wright's harmonic choices on the keyboard. This whole verse almost feels like modal jazz, the way that it explores a static harmony with no real need to move forward, no urgency. The melody that David Gilmour is singing has that same kind of feel, and even when the chorus introduces more chordal movement, it's still very languid. All you see is all your life will ever be. 
I love that big organ rip there in the second verse, the grand introduction of the organ, which plays a very important role on this album in general. And I love the chord progression that leads into it, that chorus chord progression. It's kind of this walking down thing. It begins on a C major 7 chord, then it walks down to B minor, then it goes to F major, then to G, kind of all over the place. And then it ends on this beautiful chord, what I guess I'd call a D7 flat 9 sharp 9. That's a D dominant 7 chord with both a flat 9 and a sharp 9. It starts up on the sharp 9, then it drops down to the flat 9. The E flat in the bass actually moves up to an E flat as well. Moving from the sharp 9 to the flat 9 is a really common move in jazz. And actually, Wright says that he lifted this chord from a jazz record that Strong Songs listeners will be familiar with. That is totally down to a chord I had heard on actually Miles Davis' album, Kind of Blue, which is um, that chord. That chord I just loved. I love that chord too. That audio is from a really nice 2008 documentary on the making of this album that I recommend checking out. It's directed by Matthew Longfellow. It's just called Pink Floyd, The Making of the Dark Side of the Moon. And it features a bunch of fun anecdotes and interviews with the band. And when I heard Wright say that for a minute, I was a little bit thrown since there actually aren't that many sharp nine chords on Kind of Blue. It's kind of more of a modal thing. There's not a lot of super functional altered harmony like that. But then I remembered Blue and Green, a ballad in the middle of the album that's sometimes credited to pianist Bill Evans. It certainly sounds like a Bill Evans tune to me. And that tune definitely features a whole bunch of that kind of harmony. And it's likely that that tune is what inspired Richard Wright to use that D7 sharp nine chord on Breathe a decade and a half later. So I don't want to get derailed talking about altered dominant chords. Those are dominant seventh chords with some altered chord tones to add some tension or color to the sound, like a sharp nine or a sharp 11 or a flat 13 with a sharp nine. But altered dominant chords are widely used in jazz music. Bill Evans was a huge fan of altered dominant chords. Blue and green starts here. It starts on a major seven sharp 11 chord. And then the second chord in the song is an A7 sharp nine chord. I don't know for sure, but it's kind of a safe bet that this was the chord that Richard Wright heard that he would later incorporate into the dark side of the moon. That's the chord right there. So just one more example of how interconnected all of popular music is. Kind of Blue is just one of hundreds of recordings that influenced The Dark Side of the Moon. And The Dark Side of the Moon, of course, would go on to influence countless further recordings down the road. So just never forget, no one spontaneously creates art out of nothing. Inspiration flows like a river from one thing to the next to the next. So back to the dark side of the moon and we're gonna keep moving. Breathe introduced a bunch of elements that'll return again and again over the course of this album. Jazz-inflected harmonies, dreamy layered vocals, multi-tracked guitar soundscapes, and an unusual patience. Overall, that patience is just the most remarkable thing. Beginning with silence, taking two and a half minutes for the vocals to even come in. There's this willingness to make the listener wait for it, to embrace the mood, to let them just marinate in that melancholy energy. And then, right when you're getting comfortable, Pink Floyd pulls the rug out from under you completely. On the Run is the most experimental song on this record. I think that's safe to say anyways. It was created almost entirely using synthesizers and tape effects with almost no traditional instruments. The primary instrument that it features, at least according to the album liner notes, is the EMS VCS3 synth, though I'll sometimes see other EMS synthesizers credited instead of it. The VCS3 is an analog synth with a built-in sequencer, which let the musicians run a sequence of eight notes into the synth and then loop them really quickly with this hi-hat-like sizzle going over and over again, modulating and tweaking filters as the song progressed. They also mixed in a fair number of sound effects, recorded voices, and synthesized drones. 
I don't have a ton of analysis to do on this song, but it's so obviously different from most of the material on the album, but it plays such an important role in the album's identity overall. It's a pretty bold move to drop your extended abstract synth freakout this close to the beginning of the album. We've basically had a single song at this point, and already they're like, nope, don't get comfortable, it's not just gonna be songs, anything could happen at any point. Going from speak to me to breathe and then right into on the run establishes a rhythm that Pink Floyd follows for a lot of this album. There's a song with lyrics and recognizable form, but it's surrounded on both sides by more abstract instrumental jams and textural experiments. And in addition to those contrasts, these opening songs really just show such remarkable patience. I know I've said it a lot of times, but it's really noticeable when you listen to this album compared to just about any album, really from any era, but certainly any of its contemporaries. On the Run ends with this sort of plane crash. It's been ringing out this whole time. It slowly fades and fades and fades, lulling you into a peaceful sleep before... Out of nowhere comes this cacophonous, startling cluster of alarm clocks, which only works because that fade-out went on for so long that you were lulled into a sense of peace. So those alarm clocks are setting up the next traditional song, Time, but time doesn't even begin straight away. It moves from that alarm clock ambush into another extended intro, just like in Breathe. This time it's this TikTok groove as the band outlines the chord progression and Nick Mason takes an extended Rototom solo. The rototoms are really cool. They're these oddball drums that you can tune to extremely specific notes. I actually talked about them on a Q&A last year and this recording came up. Again, they just really take their time with this. They go on and on. Mason really gets to express himself before finally, 10 minutes since the album started, David Gilmour begins singing the second full-length song. Time, credited to all four band members, has more of a solid groove than anything that's come before it. There's more grit, more pocket, and Gilmore's vocals on the verse are more pushed and higher up in his register. It's a new energy for the album and a marked contrast to the slow, spacious build that led up to it. This is important though, we actually haven't moved that far from breathe, at least in terms of harmony. Time takes the two chords from that breathe verse, E minor and A major, and it keeps using those, though it converts the E minor into an E major chord, and it adds a third chord, F sharp minor, and it makes it the first chord of the phrase, so it feels kind of like the one, and that just creates a slightly more complex thing without actually leaving the neighborhood completely, and that'll be important a little bit later. Now those verses are in contrast to everything that's come before them on the album, but they also stand in contrast to the chorus, which is just beautiful. Richard Wright actually sings lead on this chorus, and he has a much smoother voice than Gilmore. Gilmore is harmonizing with him along with the backup singers, Troy, Duncan, Strike, and St. John. They're entering for the first time, and they sound just perfect here. It's a beautiful chorus. I really like this effect they've got on the vocals. It's a little hard to hear, but once you hear it, you'll really start to notice it. It's a sort of a phaser, flanger kind of effect that adds motion to the chord. Kind of like that. Listen for it. Engineer Alan Parsons demonstrated that effect in the documentary I referenced earlier, and that's just one of a thousand artful contributions that he made to this record. He actually wasn't a big name when he made The Dark Side of the Moon, though of course Alan Parsons is a very famous name, especially in audio engineering circles. And it's easy to talk about The Dark Side of the Moon as something made by Pink Floyd, since they wrote the songs and they performed them, but Parsons played a crucial creative role in making this record. His work really elevated the art of audio engineering overall, and that vocal 
physical effect is just one example of that. Harmony is really opened up here. We've got this nice floating melody. They're going between D major 7 and A major. When you are young and life is long and there is time to kill today. And then it begins to descend and something interesting happens. There's a parallel here, to me at least, with the melody and the chords on the chorus to breathe. And then one day five, ten years have gone behind you. And I really hear that as an echo of this section from Breathe. So you probably already hear that, right? On time, they go from a D major 7 down a half step to C sharp minor. And then one day you find 10 years have got behind you. Where on Breathe, they make a very similar movement from C major down a half step to B minor, and the melody is kind of similar too. How you live and how you'll fly Smiles you'll give and tears you'll cry Both songs even make the unusual melodic move of having the melody move a semitone off the root on the minor chord. They do the same thing on both minor chords. It shouldn't work, but it does, thanks to the continuity of the melody on both songs. So anyway, just kind of a cool parallel. These two songs, Breathe and Time, are in conversation in a number of different ways. That's just a little parallel that I think is neat. And then one day five, ten years have got behind you. No one told you when to run. You missed the starting gun. We're going to be departing shortly for the next song on the album, but I do want to call out a few things for you to keep your ears open for the next time you listen to The Dark Side of the Moon. First off is David Gilmour's solo here on Time. It's his first guitar solo on the record, and it's maybe not as famous as his guitar solo on Money, which I'll be talking about in a little bit, but this one's really up there for me just in terms of grand lyricism. David Gilmour is a really melodic guitarist, and this is a really beautifully put-together solo. such a killer tone, and a lot of his tone is in his fingers, of course, that's true of any guitarist, but the key to that sound is what I always thought was a tape echo, but is actually a Benson echo rec, which doesn't actually use tape, though it's a similar effect. There's an echo on everything in this solo, so every line that he plays is followed by a second, slightly warbled version that's a little bit lower in the mix, but it's pretty present in the mix, and it gives this just grand sound, especially along with the reverb. Let me demonstrate. Here's me doing my pale imitation of David Gilmore with no tape delay turned on. And here's the same riff with a tape echo. It's not a Benson echo wreck, but still it sounds a lot bigger, right? You can really hear that phaser effect on the backup vocals here, too. Time is a big transitional moment for the dark side of the moon. Breathe is the first quote-unquote song on the album, but time is the first one that really stretches out. It introduces so many new sounds, it brings in the backup vocalists, it has that extended guitar solo, and on the second chorus, the backup vocalists really start to stretch out. Beautiful. feels like a real odyssey from start to finish. And it draws to a close with one of my favorite lyrics on the entire album. Hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way. The time is gone. The song is over. Thought I'd something more to say. Then something interesting happens. The song seems to subtly change. This chord progression, this groove, this sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? Home. 
Yes, at the end of time, the band jumps back a song and reprises Breathe. They're knitting together the two big songs from the album's first act and providing a concluding transition into the centerpiece second act. There's some pretty cool thematic similarities and tensions between these two songs, at least when I read the lyrics and kind of think about some of the images and ideas that they call forth in my mind. Both songs are concerned with viewing your life from afar and with the passage of time, the inability to relax or stop. Run, rabbit, run, waters, rights, and breathe. Dig that hole, forget the sun. When at last the work is done, don't sit down. It's time to dig another one. And then in time, he writes, you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking, racing around to come up behind you again. It's relentless and grim, racing toward an early grave or the realization that the time is gone and the song is over. So here at the end of it, as Breathe makes its return, we get a moment of calm. Home, home again. I like to be here when I can. When I come home, cold and tired. It's good to warm my bones beside the fire. We're drawing close to the end of the first side of the album, and like I said, I also see that as the end of the first act. It's a bit of a life in microcosm, trying to find moments of peace amid the relentless march of time with mixed results. And after all of that, far away across the field, the tolling of the iron bell calls the faithful to their knees to hear the softly spoken magic spell. So after all that hurried, rushing life, it's time for the thing that comes next, death, or as the dark side of the moon puts it, the great gig in the sky. As I've alluded to a few times, this album features quite a bit of cut-up interview audio mixed in with the music. The band brought in their friends, collaborators, and just people who were around or working in the studio, and gave them a series of prompts and then recorded their answers. My favorite one features in this song, as the studio doorman, Jerry O'Driscoll, offers his thoughts on death. I'm not frightened of dying, he says. Any time will do. I don't mind. Why should I be frightened of dying? There's no reason for it. You gotta go sometime. And I mean, I gotta say, right on, Jerry. The Great Gig in the Sky is absolutely a Richard Wright joint. This has his fingerprints all over it, particularly knowing what a big jazz fan he was. The opening chord progression is just this lovely, almost worshipful trip around the circle of fourths, this long roundabout progression in B-flat with loads of 2-5-1 progressions. It just goes round and round and round until it finally resolves on B-flat major, which sets up the drop to G minor, where vocalist Clara Torrey belts out an opening phrase that's among the most famous melodies ever recorded. Claire Torrey. This is just a peak moment on this album. This is maybe my favorite moment on the entire album. And it's it's a show-stopping performance by a then 25-year-old Tory who came in cold and improvised the whole thing in a couple of takes. As the story goes, she was originally paid a flat fee as a studio musician, but then in 2004, she sued for a songwriting credit on the song and settled with the band and the label out of court. And she's now listed as a songwriter along with Richard Wright. And I got to say, I'm not usually a fan of lawsuits related to authorship and music, but in this case, this seems like a good outcome. It is just impossible to listen to Tori's performance on this song and draw any conclusion other than that she and Wright are equally responsible for what it ultimately became. And more importantly, more to the point, just, man, she sounds good.
It's a colossal, album-defining performance, this furious storm of vocal power unleashed over gales of rippling organ swells and thundering drum fills. Okay, can you tell that this is the song that plays when Dorothy's house gets sucked up into the tornado in The Wizard of Oz? of a musical climax carries on for as long as it possibly can until, like even the most ferocious storm, it finally blows itself out. That whole explosive solo section was really just two chords, G minor up to C major over and over again, but here at the end, Tori freely improvises over the more involved introductory chord progression from the beginning with some lovely results. It's really just a long, drawn-out goodbye, a way to bring the A-side of the dark side of the moon to a close. I like to imagine what it would be like to listen to this album when it first came out back in 1973, to reach the end of the record and to be just deep inside of it, fully under its spell, and so curious about what might come next. Whatever your imagination came up with, it probably wasn't what actually comes next. Side B kicks off with a tape loop of cash machine sound effects, and before you can count to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, the bass line comes in and money gets underway. Money is the odd song out on Dark Side of the Moon, but I don't mean that as a bad thing. It was written to be the album's single, and it shows it's got a different groove and a different energy from everything else. I actually talked about this song's groove on an earlier mailbag episode of Strong Songs, but as many of you probably know, Money is one of the most famous songs to be in 7-4 time, which is an unusual meter compared with the usual 4-4 or 3-4 time signatures that we hear in the vast majority of popular songs. I tend to think of it as 3 plus 4, though I think that on that Q&A I said I think of it as 4 plus 3, and then a bunch of people wrote me emails about how I was wrong, but regardless, however you want to count it, it's got to add up to 7 like this. 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3, 4. 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3, 4. This is a fun riff to play. Most guitar and bass players listening to this have probably played the money riff at some point. Either on bass and guitar, it works just about the same. We're in the key of B minor, and it just sits really well under the fingers. This song was written by Roger Waters, music and lyrics, and it shows there's no jazzy 2-5 progressions or altered dominance here. This is just a riff-based B minor blues. It's a hit. This really is a blues, too. I've talked at length in past episodes about blues song form and how the 12-bar blues form is the backbone of modern rock and pop music, and Money is just another example of a blues. I've talked about a lot of blueses on this show, and here's another one. It has a slightly unusual form in that the verses don't actually go to a four chord, they just stay on the one, that B minor chord, straight through to the turnaround when it goes up to F sharp, the five, then down to E, the four, and down to one. But that changes for the solos, they start going to that four chord and the solos are just a full-on blues. Dick Perry takes a honking, full-on standing up on the bar, slap-delayed blues solo on tenor sax, following the form and staying in that 7-4 time signature. And here he's gone to the four chord, traditional blues form, like I said. And as they come to the end of Dick Perry's solo, he goes into the riff with the band, and then, at least in part because I think David Gilmour wanted to unleash his riffs in a more familiar time signature, the band switches into 4-4 for the guitar solo. The 
This is an extremely famous solo, the most famous solo off of this album, and that's for a reason. The whole song just kicks off here. There's a real feeling of release as Pink Floyd lets go of their more restrained, less comfortable odd meter and digs into a straightforward blues shuffle. So it's a great solo, there are a lot of reasons that it's a great solo, but the thing I want to highlight is actually a recording technique from Alan Parsons, and that's the way that they've double-tracked and panned the guitar. This whole solo is really two guitar parts, each was performed and recorded separately by David Gilmour, and it's that pairing that gives it its larger-than-life sound. There's a lot of doubling going on on this album in general, a lot of vocal doubling and a lot of guitar doubling, and in 1973, doubling was still a relatively new thing to do in the studio, and there was a lot of space for experimentation with how to approach it. It doesn't always require recording things multiple times. There are effects that can get you a doubled sound, like that echo effect that I talked about earlier that Gilmore used on his solo on time, but there's nothing that sounds quite like an actually doubled guitar part. Gilmore here perfectly replicates all of the lines in this first chorus in both parts, the one on the left and the one on the right, but there are still some minor variations between them and it makes it sound a little like they're being played by two different people. It makes the whole thing sound bigger and more interesting than it otherwise would. Let me demonstrate what I'm talking about. So let's take that opening line and I'm gonna record it with just a single part panned slightly to the right, like the guitar part that's dominant in the mix on the record. Sounds fine, but now I'm gonna double it with a second, slightly more overdriven part panned over to the left. Sounds a lot bigger, doesn't it? It's a cool effect not only because of how it widens out that first chorus, but also in the way that it lets Gilmore move beyond simple doubling and tell a story with two different guitar parts. So his whole solo is three choruses long, but he doesn't just double the whole solo for all three choruses. So three choruses three times through the song form. On the first time they're doubled, but on the second chorus, the guitar drops out at first and the band pulls way back into a very different kind of feel. At first, it seems like the guitar solo is over, but it's not. It's just that the quieter left side guitar is taking the lead and is playing by itself. This keeps up through the second chorus. Nick Mason has a lot of fun getting to play some drum fills. Then, at the end of the second chorus, they go whole hog into the third chorus as the other guitar, the one on the right, takes over and plays by itself, ripping into the upper frets on its own with no doubled support. You can even hear the left-hand guitar moving into accompaniment and playing chords. It's so cool and kind of unusual. This is something that I'm sure other people have done, but I haven't encountered it that many times that I can think of off the top of my head, pairing together and then splitting apart two doubled solos, treating them like they're separate narrators telling the same story, a story with a unified beginning, a sparsely played middle, a powerful exclamatory end. Money goes on for another verse, but it's really just a long off-ramp after those solos. They eventually fade down to this trotting 4-4 groove, layering in a bunch more of those evocative audio clips from the interviews they recorded. I really like Patricia Watts talking about how some geezer was cruising for a bruising. Yeah, geezer was cruising for a bruising. 
<laughs> also really enjoy Gilmore in the back noodling and singing back and forth with his guitar. Even more doubling on this record. It's a real theme. And as the din begins to gently fade, Richard Wright's organ softly, gently begins to take over, undulating thanks to what sounds to me like an actual Leslie speaker, carrying us up and out of the blues and into the more elevated contemplative space of the song that feels to me like the emotional center of the dark side of the moon. Richard Wright and Roger Waters' Us and Them. This is a gorgeous song, and it's one that I've really come to appreciate over the years as I've gotten more familiar with the dark side of the moon. Like I said earlier, Money Rules. Money was my favorite song on this album for a long time when I was younger, but Money is a bit of an energy outlier in terms of the overall album with its shuffle groove, its blues guitar riffs, that down and dirty rock energy. Us and Them feels a little more in line with the interconnected musings of those opening tracks, Breathe and Time, and coming directly after Money, it actually acts as a sort of counterbalance to that song's overwhelming gravitational pull, and it balances out the album in general. God only knows it's not what we Gilmore is back on his Univibe pedal here. He's playing through this lovely chord progression. On this verse, they're keeping a D pedal underneath, meaning there's a D in the bass, but the chords move around over it. That's what a pedal tone is. And this verse has a D pedal going underneath it. So we start with a D major nine chord, which has a nine instead of a third. Then they go to a B minor, still with the D in the bass. Very nice sound there. Then they go to an F augmented triad, so an F, an A, and a C sharp, which gives a sort of a D minor major seven sound when you put that over a D pedal. And and they end on a G major over D. I also love how Alan Parsons uses delay on the vocals. It's also floating and placid, and that's thanks largely to that pedal tone. It creates this solid foundation under the song, which makes everything feel floating and elevated in a certain way. But this is not actually a light, floating, carefree song at all. Which makes the build into the chorus all the more explosive. Chorus is such a powerful climactic moment. It's a tragedy playing out in grand tones with a choir accompanying it. This is a song about the futility of war and the inhumanity of killing based on empty distinctions like us versus them. Forward he cried from the rear and the front rank died and the general sat and the lines on the map moved from side to side. This is a long song with something very important to say. And the way that Roger Waters talks about it, it feels like he sees this song as the thematic heart of the album. This is an album about the challenges that we face, the fleeting nature of time, the twin specters of madness and death, the corrupting influence of money. But in the end, as Waters put it in that 2008 documentary, quote, the fundamental question that's facing us all is whether or not we're capable of dealing with the whole question of us and them. Even this far into the album, I'm struck by its patience as the band just floats along, bringing back more recorded interview audio as their interviewees discuss violence and aggression. And then... Dick Perry, whose saxophone has been flitting in and out for the entire run of this song, finally gets a chance to shoot his shot. I always say that when words won't suffice, maybe you just need a saxophone to get the job done. And on this upcoming instrumental chorus, Dick Perry gets the job done. Yeah. 
seriously, there comes a point in most saxophonist careers when you can just tell that you're being asked to carry the emotional weight of a song on your shoulders. And when that moment comes, you just blow as hard as you can and hope your lungs don't let you down. It's really a whole journey of a song, and it's always struck me how it begins and ends in completely opposite ways. At the start, there was that patient, gradual buildup, and at the end, just a no-nonsense, direct flip, a transition straight into the instrumental jam of any color you like. Any Color You Like is the most straightforward jam on the record, and it gives what's probably a good sense of the kind of atmospheric stuff Pink Floyd was doing live on stage around the time they recorded The Dark Side of the Moon. And there's some really nice stuff on here, some killer guitar tones, some lovely layered synths. It's a true palate cleanser. It almost feels like this groovy intermission, giving you a chance to kick back, enjoy the groove, and get ready for The Dark Side of the Moon to shift into its final act. The one-two combo of brain damage and eclipse. The lunatic is on the grass. After spending the preceding parts of the record in the background playing bass, Roger Waters steps forward on these final two songs to sing his own lyrics, starting with Brain Damage. The song has an unsettling energy from the start, and that's largely down to what they're doing harmonically. So they're moving between D major and G7, G dominant. That's just a one to four. That's a pretty standard move, but the guitar part and the melody are really emphasizing the oddest part of that transition. Gilmore's part starts with an F sharp up top on the guitar, that's the third in D, and then it moves down to an F natural, which is the flat seven in G7. The melody also emphasizes those two notes. It starts on F sharp, the lunatic, and then it goes down a half step, is on the grass. It almost makes it sound like a parallel move between D major and D minor, which gives the song this topsy-turvy, slightly mad energy. The paper holds their folded faces to the There's a flatness to all of this, and that's on purpose. This whole verse plays out like a straight, perhaps overly medicated line, which only serves as a dramatic contrast to the chorus. And if the dam breaks open many years too soon, and if there is no if the dam breaks open many years too soon, and if there's no room upon the hill, if your head explodes with dark forebodings too, well, where will I see you? I'll see you on the dark side of the moon. <laughs> and there it is! It's always a special moment when the band finally sings the name of the album in a song on the album, and this might be the Ur example of that. It's partly because it's such a memorable and mysterious album name, The Dark Side of the Moon. It's also because this record is so famous and everyone knows it, but it's also just that this is an incredible use of that technique. Because there's a lot of power in an album's name, and there's a lot of power in invoking it in a song. This is the name of the album. This is why we're all here. And by singing it in this way, with that backing choir, those powerful chords, at this point in Brain Damage, Pink Floyd is telling you that we are at the end. Whatever may happen in the future, if the cloud bursts thunder in your ear, if your head explodes with dark forebodings too, well... I'll see you on the dark side of the moon. <laughs> Man. I'm pretty sure that's Doris Troy over there on the left. She's an incredible vocalist. She steps out hard on these final few tunes, and she deserves a lot of credit for the energy of this album's finale. And over the course of one final smooth run through the brain damage chords, we get some final interview audio from road manager Peter Watts, and then it's time to bring the whole thing to a close. It's hard to resist superlatives when talking about stuff like this, but I'll just say Eclipse is an incredibly strong way to end an album. Touch, you taste, you feel, 
I'd wager that the strength of this conclusion is responsible in no small part for this album's fame. It's really just a collection of four chords steadily descending, but the combination of the performance, the energy, and the lyrics, it puts the listener in the headspace of a culmination. It's impossible to hear this song and think back not just on the album you just listened to, but on various moments of your life and how the one thing can help give you a new perspective on the other. As they recorded those interviews that turn up throughout the album, one of the final questions Pink Floyd asked was, what do you think of the dark side of the moon? It's a fantastic question, and not just because it prompted doorman Jerry O'Driscoll's legendary response, which you can faintly hear during the album's final closing moments, it's a great question because it's one that each of us listening can also answer in our own way. So, what do I think of The Dark Side of the Moon? I have such a strong mental image of this album. I see different shapes, colors, places, and people when I hear each song. I find this album to be unusually synesthetic in that way. It conjures all these images in my mind's eye, and I don't think I'm alone in that. I'd imagine that many of you out there feel similarly. And the thing, the magic thing, is that when each of us listens to this album, we see something different. Standing in the space between the bleakness of its lyrical subject matter and the boundless joy of its musical performance, The Dark Side of the Moon tapped into something all-encompassing and almost universal, a universality that by its nature has no real tension with the fact that this album means something different, lyrically, musically, and sensorily, to each person who listens to it. There's just something undeniable and totalizing about that fact. All that you touch, all that you see, all that you taste, all you feel. The dark side of the moon is big enough to hold everyone. It's big enough to black out the sun. Or as Jerry O'Driscoll put it, better than perhaps anyone else ever has, there is no dark side of the moon, really. As a matter of fact, it's all dark. That'll do it for my album-length analysis of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Whew, that was a real undertaking, but it was a really rewarding one. And I know there are a lot of things that I didn't get to. That's always going to be how it works when I take on something as dense as this. But I gotta say, I listened to this album a million times before I started working on this episode, but it really opened up to me in the process of making this. I've learned to hear so much more when I listen to it now. It's made the album a much richer experience for me, and I hope that I managed to translate at least some of that to all of you out there. Go listen to The Dark Side of the Moon after listening to this episode. You're going to be amazed at how much is going on on that record. I can't believe that I've made 100 episodes of Strong Songs. What? 100 episodes? That is ridiculous. That's like 100 hours of podcasts. It seems like only yesterday I was posting my first episode on SoundCloud and asking the world, uh, hey, does, does anyone want to listen to this? Would anybody be into this? And here we are at the end of the show's fourth year with 100 freaking episodes in the bag. Really, thank you all so much for listening and for supporting me as I make this show. It's such a rare thing to be able to have the space and time to really find the joy in these songs, and I hope that some of that joy translates out to the experience of listening to the show, that we've got a self-reinforcing loop of good feeling going on. I'm certainly feeling it on my end. As always, if you want to support the creation of Strong Songs, you can become a patron, you can make a donation, links for both of those in the show notes. You can also just spread the word, tell your friends, or just listen like you have been. I'll have one more full episode for you all here in 2022. It'll be a year in review, which I'll publish in two weeks, and that'll be a lot of fun. And I'm actually going to be taking some time in 2023 to do something different to recharge my creative juices. I'm really excited about it, but I'll tell you more about that in a couple of weeks. For now, I'm going to bring us home with a sax solo of my own, since I somehow didn't play any sax on this episode. So stick around for that, and I'll see you in two weeks for more Strong Songs.
no dark side in the moon, really. Matter of fact, it's all dark. 